0: How many of you would say that you really believe that you are loved? Do you know that 60% of people on planet Earth would say that they do not believe that there's even one person on the whole planet that actually loves them? That's over half of the people that live on Earth that don't feel that anyone loves them. And it might actually be true. They have an experienced love from another person, maybe from their parent or their spouse or their coworkers. The world is a place where there's lots of activity, lots of action, plenty of events, but still all kinds of people wandering around, not sure if they're actually loved, even among God's people in the church of Jesus Christ. There's many that come and they they're not really sure of their own salvation because they're not really convinced that God loves them. They believe that the statement God loves the world is true, but they may not have appropriated it into their own heart and life. And so they live their lives unsure whether or not God actually loves them. And this is why we see a long list of people who are constantly seeking attention in other things. Maybe if they're not loved by people or are convinced they aren't loved by God, they rally around them friends and those, they become so extremely loyal, kind of like codependent to those friendships to the point that those friendships might damage them or take their eyes off of the love of God. There's others that lack transparency, met people like that. They would never admit to a flaw. They're very surfacey. They never go deep in conversation. They never ask for prayer. They never offer prayer. They never self-disclose because they don't trust people. And they don't trust people because they don't think that they are loved. Others manifest their sense that they aren't loved through constant suspicion towards authority unwilling to surrender to anyone under any circumstances because they've been hurt in the past. Some hide behind family honor, creating whole cultures like honor, shame systems where you, you support the family at, at all costs, even if there's great evil taking place. Others lack purity and give themselves to sexual debauchery or promiscuity, thinking that somehow they could find, Love in a multiplicity of sexual partners. How is it possible that human beings, so many human beings, perhaps even some in our churches, feel so unloved and seek to fill the void in other ways? How is that possible? Well, deep down, we all know we have flaws. Deep down, we know we have things in our lives that are ugly and also in our human experiences we've often learned that love is very much conditional upon our ability to perform certain tasks etc but the word of god teaches us this in john chapter 3 verse 16 perhaps What has historically been known as the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I've chosen this verse as the subject of our preaching during the Christmas season. Last week we just preached the first line. For God so loved the world. Today we're going to look at the second line that he gave his only son. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the third line. This verse, of course, is a response to a man by the name of Nicodemus, a religious ruler that came to Jesus at night because he didn't want his buddies to know that he was talking to Jesus, I suppose. And he enters into a conversation with Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus had performed many miracles, and he kind of wants to know about Jesus' identity a little bit more. And Jesus goes on to say to him, you know what? Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He has to have a physical birth and he has to have a spiritual birth. He has to be born of water. Every baby that's born, what happens? The mother's water breaks and out comes the baby. Everybody comes into the world that way. But a person must not just have a. Physical birth, they must also have a spiritual birth. They must be born again. And when Jesus says this to him, he's obviously very concrete in his thinking. So he misunderstands Jesus and he says, well, how is it possible for a man to enter back into his mother's womb when he is old? And so Jesus then gives this verse, John three sixteen, to him and helps him to understand the true nature of the gospel. That Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. Because the world stands condemned already, but he came into the world to save the world. And we have these words then that are frankly shocking. If you understand the nature of humanity and the nature of God, for God so loved the world. But how can I be sure that God loves me? We have to look at the second line of John 3.16. God declares it in the first line. And in the second line, he teaches us how. How is it that God has so loved the world? It says that he gave his only son. You know, those of us that are redeemed, that are saved, that have been spiritually born again, it's not because of our self-love. The world teaches us that. You want to move up? Love yourself, believe in yourself. Trust in yourself. That's the world's message. But the redeemed are not believed because they love themselves. But listen to these words. I've chosen them carefully. They're redeemed because they have believed in. They accept and they trust in the eternal love of God. They know it. They feel it. And they've applied it. For God so loved the world. How did he love the world? He gave his only son. This is the ultimate verification of God's love for us. If you question it, read it again. This is the ultimate verification of God's love for us. Jesus coming to bear the consequences of our sin. What is our sin? In Genesis 3, we read about the fall of humanity into sin. We rebelled against God just hours after our creation. And that fall led to a fallout between us and God that we could not fix. We couldn't remedy it. We couldn't restore the relationship. And in comes Jesus. And the Bible says... He is God's only son. This stresses, underscores, highlights, circles, the magnificence of the Christmas gift. There's no one like Jesus. God didn't have five options as to who he might send. There's no one like Jesus. He's the only suitable offering. He's the only way to redeem us. The New Testament writers wrote later that God is Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the means of getting to God. He's the truth of God's word and his pronouncement of judgment and his pronouncement of hope and promise to us. And he's the life, eternal life in the future, abundant life in the here and now. You want some of that? You got to go to Jesus. Jesus is the only son of God. So here's what makes God's love amazing. When I tell you this, bear in mind that this is the only place you'll hear this in the world, in a Christian church, reading from the word of God. You won't hear this in any temple. You won't hear this in a mosque. You won't hear this on the street. You won't hear this in universities. You won't hear this from an atheist. You won't hear this from an agnostic. Their messages are all Radically different. Here's what makes God's love amazing God's love for us has nothing to do with our loveliness. Nothing to do with our loveliness. And everything to do with the love of the Father for us. That's a radical message. You're not going to hear that outside of the gospel. Outside of the gospel, the message is you can change the word. But you can get God's love or affection or approval or salvation by. And then the verbs start to flow. Do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. That's the message of all false religions there in like a sentence. It's all about what you do. Christianity is about what he has done. Christianity is about not our loveliness, but the love that God has for us. His love for a lost creation created by the son that he loves. Isn't that amazing? That the father sent the son who was the word of God who actually spoke the world into existence to redeem the very creation that he created that rebelled against him. The one that created us also redeemed us. What did we do? We fought him. What did he do? He sought us. He taught us. He bought us. So what ought we to do? Worship him thank him be appreciative for him accept his love for us let's consider in more detail what we were lovingly given there's three aspects to the gift of Jesus that are pretty significant the first is this you think about Jesus as a gift you're like why is he a gift and why did he come what what makes the gift of Jesus unique? Well, the gift of Jesus is unique because he was a gift for a consequence. Not a gift for a reward. Not a gift to celebrate something we accomplished. Not a gift to mark a birthday, an anniversary. The fact that we've been good little boys and good little girls. There's a Christmas under the, a present under the tree for us. It's not a gift because we are awesome. It's a gift for a consequence. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, think about how interesting that statement is when you consider some other passages of the Bible. In 1 John 2, verses 15-17, to God says to his people who are supposed to be called out of the world and living a different life, he says to us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that's pretty categorical, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here we have this like categorical statement don't love the world because the world is wicked. The world is dying. The world is passing away. And then even God's posture towards the world is explained for us in John chapter 3, verse 36. This spiritually dark world that we're told not to love will experience the wrath of God. It says there, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That means that's your natural state. When you reject the son, the wrath of God remains upon you. Your natural state is you're in spiritual rebellion against God this paints a rather bleak picture of the world. And it makes it extra shocking that God who tells us not to love the world because it's so foul loves the world. The world is so bad that we're told not to love it. God will pour out his wrath upon it. In fact, you might even think that's a bit of a contradiction. Why does God love something that we're not supposed to love? God is loving that which is undeserving of his love. God is, desert, God is loving the unlovable, not the lovable or the lovely. Why does God love that which we should not? Because God's love, again, is not because of us. It is in spite of us. Scripture makes this categorical. And that means that I deserve and you deserve the consequences For your rebellion. Do you actually believe that, by the way? Because increasingly, people don't believe that. Even many Christian churches have carved the word sin out of their vocabulary. There's many reasons for that. One is, well, we don't appear judgmental. In fact, probably 25 years or so ago, John 3.16 was actually replaced with a much better known verse in the Bible. You know which one it is? Matthew 7.1. More people know Matthew 7.1 than they do John 3.16. You'll even hear unbelievers quote it. They might not know the source of it, but they quote it all the time. Judge not, lest you be judged. Live and let live. Don't judge anybody. Tolerate it all. It's interesting how that's been stripped out of context, but in in reaction to that, we might think, oh, we don't want to use sin because we don't want to seem or appear self-righteous or judgmental. But if you actually listen to any accurate preacher of the word of God, no preacher of the word of God will ever point to himself as an innately righteous person. We're simply reminding people what God has done in our lives and inviting people to to experience the same kind of renewal and regeneration that we have experienced, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Others might say, well, what's the point of preaching sin? What's the point of moralizing lost people? They're lost anyway. Why talk about sin? They already know they're sinners. Someone just told me that recently why do you preach against this and that in the church? People already know they're sinners. I'm like, are you kidding me? So many people don't think they are. Or we say, well, we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. so Let's not talk about it. But hey, in the gospel message, unless you understand your sin and how despicable it is to God, and how it actually deserves God's wrath. Grace is really not that great. And what you'll do then is you'll just try to work off the little bit of bad that you do with good deeds. When I was a child, my mom used to feed us a lot of hot cereal. She was kind of a health mom. And so we didn't get things like Fruit Loops or Frosted Flakes or Apple Jacks unless we you know, went to a friend's house or something like that. Even at school, my kindergarten teacher would give out individual Fruit Loops as rewards for whatever you did. And I had to take a note to school saying, Aaron's not allowed to eat Fruit Loops. And there was no alternative. I didn't get anything else for it. I just, that's why I turned out to be kind of a brat. So we ate healthy cereal, right? Oatmeal, cornmeal, Red River cereal, that kind of stuff. And one day, my mom said, uh, hey, do you guys want some raisins on your cereal? Now, my kids don't like raisins, but I do. But part of it's because I like sweet things and I couldn't eat Fruit Loop. So I said, pour them on. So she came up with a little bag and she sprinkled a bunch of raisins on my cereal and perhaps some of my siblings as well. And we started eating it. And I'm like, mom, there's these little, there's these little white things floating in my cereal. And she ran to the pantry and got the bag of raisins out and realized it was crawling with these little maggots. And we were eating these things. Now, if you were eating a bowl of cereal, what would be like the maximum number of maggots (laughs) that you would be prepared to eat to continue eating your bowl of cereal? How about zero? You agree with me on that? You're not going to be like, ah, there's only three maggots and you might as well down the rest of the bowl. No, my standard is zero. I don't want any contamination in my bowl of cereal. God's the same way. When you stand before God in heaven, God's not going to say, well, I mean, you only got three maggots in your life. You know, you're a bit of a liar. You stole a candy bar in the store. And um, you gossiped a few times. But that guy at the end of the line, he's got like, thousands of maggots in his life. That's not the way God operates. God's standard is perfection and purity. God's not going to let like really, really, really nice people into his glorious heaven. Who've sinned. Well, only five times. The reality is all of us have sinned. Chances are you're not like the worst sinner. that's ever existed, but if you've sinned, you're done. God will not stomach that. God will not tolerate that. God will not permit any of us into heaven, even if we've only sinned once. This is why it's necessary for us to be purified from the inside out. And the only one that can purify us is the eternal son of God. He is a gift that came because of the consequence of our sin. And he bore that sin in his own body. The punishment, the scourge, the wrath of God. And it's this awareness of sin and its consequences that is a prerequisite to our reception of the grace of God. The gift of eternal life. Do you consider yourself a sinner, by the way, by nature? And are you prepared to accept the consequences of that? So we have a gift with a consequence. Each of us is lost. We're done without Jesus. But here's where it gets good. Jesus is also a gift that required a sacrifice. The son is God's sacrifice. He's God's substitute. He's God's purifier for our sins. Who is the son? When you think of Jesus as the son, Sometimes you talk to little children, and you say, well, what, what does it mean when it says Jesus is the son of God? Oh, he's like, he's like God's little boy. You know, if a little boy looks to his dad, I'm my dad's son, and then he hears Jesus called the son, he might think, oh, Jesus is like the father's little boy. But that's not what the word son means. He's not God's offspring. The term son is a title. And it tells us something about his role. Jesus isn't created. Jesus isn't like half God or a mini God, like a mini me of God. Jesus isn't God's little boy, but his sonship speaks of his role as part of the triune Godhead. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is actually the creator God. We have father, son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal persons within one God. Does that sound confusing? It should, because there's nothing else in creation like them. I've heard people try to come up with analogies. He's like a three-leaf clover. No, he's not. Nope. He's like a cherry pie. You got the cherry, the filling, the crust. Nope. He's like an orange. There's seeds, there's fruit, there's the, the skin. Nope. No, nope. It's not like any of that. You can never find an analogy, don't even bother trying, in creation that is like the Trinity. There's nothing like it. Because God isn't three parts. He's not three ingredients. He's three equal persons and one eternal essence. And in the Godhead, the Father carries out certain functions and roles. And the Son carries out certain functions and roles. And the Spirit carries out certain functions and roles. The son happens to be the creator. He speaks the world into existence. He is the eternal word of God. He is fully God from eternity past. And from the incarnation forward, he is fully man. Why was Jesus, by the way, born of a virgin? Just so it's like, wow, that's cool. Better pay attention to this guy who's was born of a virgin. Now he's born of a virgin for a reason. The virgin birth is a necessary doctrine because through the first Adam, children inherit the sin generation after, generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. But Jesus sidesteps that because he's not born of a father, a human father. He's born of a human mother. Therefore he's fully God, but he doesn't inherit the sin nature. He's the second Adam Romans tells us. And he now provides us with an opportunity To be made right with God. He's the second person of the eternal Godhead. Let me, in fact, prove this a little bit further by pointing you to some attributes. In the scriptures, you can look these up for yourself. Here are some of the the names or attributes that are given just to Jesus. And tell me if these don't sound God like. He is called the Savior, he is called the Rock, he is called the First and the Last. He's called the I am, which is huge, by the way. That's the covenant name that God revealed himself to Moses through. The I am. The I am what? He just is. Yeah, but like I am. He just is. He's the eternal one. He's the I am. He is called God, period. He's called the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's called the creator. He's called the light. And he's called the judge. Now, you you can't just go around calling yourself those things unless you happen to be God. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he presents to us the fullness of God. Now, I'm emphasizing this because we tend to very quickly reduce, 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 reduce our understanding of Jesus. If we're not careful, down to almost like, well, maybe he's kind of like a little bigger brother than me. Kind of needs my respect, but he's more like a buddy, he's a chum, he's a pal. And we, we lose sight of how amazing it is that Jesus would have died for me. What, what's your favorite, or least favorite chore when you're doing housework? Cleaning the toilet? Doing the laundry? Dusting? Let's go with dusting. Dusting's pretty gross if you think about it. Who knows what's in the dust? I'm, I don't want to spoil your lunch, but... There's some nasty things in dust, right? And it settles around your house. Who knows what it is? And you start to dust and it's like in the air, getting in your eyes. Maybe you feel it in your mouth. It's kind of gross, right? Nobody's out there like, oh, I love collecting dust. I have a dust collection. I love dust. Everybody hates dust. Like, why does dust exist? I don't know. I wish it didn't. Anybody here love dust? No, I don't like dust. Think about this. Statement from God in Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Starts with a question. Who? Who is he? Is he kind of like an older brother? A religious guru? Someone that's maybe a little, little more famous than me? Who is Jesus? Who is God? Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? This is Psalm It goes on to say, who looks far down on the heavens, which are above us. He's looking far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. The ash heap there, by the way, is a reference to the ash that's left over, not from your cute little campfire where you're roasting marshmallows, but from the garbage that's burnt outside the city. So it's like, well, how big is God? The psalmist is like, well, let me tell you how big God is. He's way up there. And in order to find us, he says to the heavenly angels, hey, I'm going to go spend some time lifting up some poor humans. It's going to be a little bit. And he comes all the way down into our world. And he looks among the dust, little flecks of dust. He's like, There, there he is. His life's kind of rough. I'm going to lift him up. This is how dramatic the difference is between God and me. I'm like a little fleck of dust, a little ash in an ash heap of burned garbage. And God condescends in Jesus and lifts us up out of that in a response to that, I treat him as my buddy? Are you kidding me? He's the eternal God. And he needs our worship and praise. If you don't think you're loved, like, what is that all about? The eternal God condescended. Sorting through the dust to find you. And then what just makes it mind-boggling, I can preach it, but it, it just sounds even weird to say. That that creator would give his life so that this fleck of dust might be redeemed from his own self-induced stupidity? (laughs) You won't find that in other religions. You'll find the do this, do that formula in order to be made right with God. But the Bible speaks of a God of grace. This God who comes and looks Down in the dust piles of life. (laughs) You know what else this solves? This solves pride. Think of how insane pride is when you have that image of God. When we think too highly of ourselves, too much of ourselves, we need to be recognized and affirmed by other bits of dust. It's like, what? It's ridiculous. It's so childish. It should make us laugh. It never satisfies, but God's grace does. What does pride do? It drives us away from God. You can always tell a prideful person, by the way, because they always want to update you on themselves. This is what I've done. This is what I've accomplished. They do it verbally. They do it in their social media accounts with their glamorized photos of like the perfect family, the perfect life, the perfect kiss, the perfect outfit, the perfect this, the perfect that. Like we all know it's a lie. What we should be doing is updating people on our most recent experience of grace. That's a gospel-centered life. Updating people upon what God has done in our lives. In fact, that's a good conversation starter at Christmas if you're hanging around with unbelieving family members. Just updating them. How's your year been? How's school going? How's your boyfriend, your girlfriend? How's your family? How's your kids? How's that new baby? Bought a new car, I heard. Just updating them on God's grace in your life is a major conversation starter. And I can tell you it's pretty countercultural. Pretty countercultural. Can we ever, in fact, run out of examples of grace to lift our spirits? Nope. They just keep coming and coming and coming because God is so gracious to us. This is why we can say that we also have a gift of unlimited value. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he That he means that the son was sent by the prerogative of God. It was God's divine prerogative to send his son, not in response to my performance, but that he. This speaks of divine prerogative. Those of you that are dating or married, let me give you a little discussion this afternoon. Little discussion question, just to kind of like get y'all riled up. Um, who got whose attention first? Who got whose attention first when you met that special other? Susie and I disagree on this. My perspective is she was flirting with me and hitting on me, okay? And I responded. Her perspective is I was flirting with her and hitting on her, right? And she, and she responded. So we might have some disagreement in the room as to like, who got whose attention first. Maybe in one relationship, oh, it's the guy. He, he pursued the girl. Uh, maybe in another relationship, the girl was kind of like, you know, doing her thing and trying to pull him in. Who got whose attention first? And there's going to be a lot of different stories in the room as to how that all works itself out. But when we ask that question of God, okay, I'm in relationship with God. Who got whose attention first? Was I down here sort of looking pretty good? And God's like, man, there's a lot of losers around, but Aaron, he's not so bad. Did God look down the tunnel of time, 2,000, 3,000 years in advance and say, you know what? He's going to be a good one. I'm going to set my sight on him. Is that how it works? Did I get God's attention first? First? Did God get my attention first? Like, who initiated this whole relationship between me and God? John 3.16 tells us. That he. By the way, that took place 2,000 years before I was even thought of. 2,000 years before I made any move. God didn't see my potential. I wasn't around 2,000 years ago looking for grace, nor was my great-great-great-great-granddaddy even thought of yet. It was there from the time I was born. From the creation of the world, God set his sights on you. And then Jesus came in space and time over 2,000 years ago. Philippians chapter 2 tells us he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Came into this world. That he is followed by the word gave. That's that word of sacrifice. That he gave. His only, his only refers to the exclusivity of Jesus. And the expansiveness of the gift of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus and the expansiveness of the gift of Jesus. Meaning no one else could do it. And he was totally awesome enough to do it for us. Son. The creator sacrifices himself for the creature. You can't put a price tag on that. And that should stir your hearts to worship. That should give you something to think about and to celebrate this Christmas and in the months to come as you consider what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you. Stop taking credit for it. Stop taking credit for it. If even if you're a Christian, you've fallen into self righteousness. You know, you meet people like that. Usually the more broken you are, the more self righteous you become when you get your act together. You've got to be careful about that. Lots of self righteous people. In a very subtle way, they wander through church with their plastic smiles and their stories, presenting themselves as like Mrs. Super Christian or Mr. Super Christian. And, they, and it just, it reveals their brokenness. It reveals, in fact, their lack of appreciation for what God has done. When righteousness is wrapped in the rags of pride and false humility. It's pretty gross. got to be careful about that. This view of God condescending, the creator redeeming the dust, giving his very self for our sins is an amazing one, which truly and authentically, humbles us. Maybe this Christmas, someone's going to say, Hey man, one of your buddies, let me tell you about a killer deal. I got can say, well, let me tell you about a killer deal. I got, and you can unpack for them the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us through Jesus. So you came in here. You might've thought, I'm not really sure that I'm loved. Well, it's true that you're not lovable and it's true that you're not lovely by nature. But the Lord Jesus Christ loves you nonetheless. The Father loves you to the point that he gave his only son. So be encouraged by that. Secondly, let it soak. just soak in the grace of God day by day as you seek to live and serve him and worship him. Cherish it every day. God will be glorified by that kind of a response and you will be lifted and encouraged in your life as a follower of Jesus.